This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Flat Earth News, our guest today, Nick Davis, exposes the global news stories which prove to be fiction generated by a new machinery of international propaganda. Davis shows the impact of this on a world where consumers believe a mass of stories which, in truth, are as false as the idea that the Earth is flat, from the Millennium Bug to WMDs in Iraq. Davis has been named Journalist of the Year, Reporter of the Year, and Feature Writer of the Year for his investigations into crime, drugs, poverty, and other social issues. He has been a journalist since 1976 and is currently a freelance, working regularly as special correspondent for The Guardian. Nick Davis, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hi. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm not bad for an Englishman yeah. approaching <laughs> middle age. <laughs> that's, that's good to hear. Is the weather fine there in London? Uh, it's kind of contradictory because we have beautiful bright blue sky and freezing cold wind. Yeah, well, that's that sounds good to me. I mean, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take uh, I'll take that over 110 degree heat and. Uh, oh, we, we had four inches of snow the other day. Oh, really? Oh, My goodness, yeah. that this is like, something. That's very unusual for this late in the year, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. What are we doing talking about the weather? You're like English people. Yeah, just, <laughs> just like English, English people. people. Talk about the weather. <laughs> now, now is, is global warming flat Earth news? Um, global warming is riddled with flat Earth news. Yeah. I've, I've described in the book how there's a kind of three-way battle going on between two different segments of the corporate world and then the green lobby, all three of whom manipulate the press in order to publish stories which are false or distorted. And in the middle, it's kind of like the civilian population in a war. You know, the civilians always end up being killed, whoever moves onto their <laughs> turf. And so in the middle, like the civilian population... You have newspaper readers and people who watch television news just being dragged in one direction or another by different lumps of misinformation. Uh-huh. So, I mean, for example, what's happened that recently that's been a, uh, a misconception that's been propagated? Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? Is there, is, 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 who's winning the battle here, the, the green faction or the corporates? Um, I think um, in, in terms of the political impact of the way the misinformation feeds through, uh-huh. the green lobby is finally winning in that it is now widely accepted by members of the public and key political forces that there is a problem there to deal with. And, and they're winning because ultimately they've got the scientific consensus on their side. But if you look at the detail of what groups like Greenpeace say, they are, as we say in the book, cranking it up. They are um, adding on top of the truth, layers of um, hyperbole in order to catch media attention and manipulate publicity in their favor. Is this a, a case of uh, the ends justifies the means in your, or do you just, you... you uh, no, I don't, I don't think that's justified, but, but the, what this book is really about yes. is the ease with which anybody nowadays can manipulate the media if they choose to. So in the, the 20, 20, 25-year history of global warming, You've not only had the green groups, you've also had the corporations, different clusters of them pushing different angles, also manipulating the media. And I'm arguing that this, this whole business of, of using the media to tell your story, whether or not it's false or distorted, that's become much, much easier than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Now, so you uh, see, if, if we were talking, say, 40 years ago, 
about the fact that you can't believe everything you read in newspapers. If we said, why is that? We'd start talking immediately about proprietors, media proprietors leaning down from on high and interfering with the work of their journalists. So people like William Randolph Hearst in the United States, Lord Beaverbrook in Britain, that generation of owners were what you might call naked propagandists. They were utterly brazen about the fact that they were using their newspapers uh, as a vehicle for a political line. Now, those owners, on the whole, have been pushed out of power by a new generation of owners, which are basically whacking great big corporations, best symbolized by Rupert Murdoch's outfit, but there, are, but there are plenty of them. And those corporations are not primarily interested in propaganda. They'll do a little bit of it. Their main interest is simply profit. And those people have completely changed the way in which media outlets function. And the bottom line, the ultimate effect of those changes is that if you want to get a distorted message into the media nowadays, you don't have to go to William Randolph Hearst or Lord Beaverbrook or any other proprietor and say, hey, would you do me a favor? Flip this in. You can go direct into the newsroom with your skills as a PR merchant, a public relations expert, and dump your story straight on the news desk, and it'll go straight in. And that's what we do. We suck up PR material and propaganda, and without checking it, we put it out because of the various changes that have gone on inside our outfits. We're speaking with Nick Davis. The book is Flat Earth News. Uh, I've always held that uh, part of the problem with journalism is just laziness, and that's not speaking of your efforts, but uh, it's, it's just that laziness, they don't want to do the job, so anything that's mm. fed to them, they'll just regurgitate. And you know, if, if they there, have... there, are, there are a few professions that have worse, a worse reputation than that of uh, journalism. So we are widely regarded as being idle, drunken, <laughs> dishonest, and generally untrustworthy. <laughs> uh, that's the reputation, not the reality. There are certainly some disgusting people working in journalism. Uh-huh. But, but actually, the truth is that... It's funny, it's funny actually, because um, if you talk to young people, students coming through university, a lot of really, really good people want to go into the media because they want to get out there and tell the truth about the world. And that is true also of a considerable proportion of the people who are in it, even old asses like me. We went into it with good motives. We want to tell the truth. The vast majority of journalists, despite that reputation, are not lazy and are not liars. The trouble is that we now work in structures which make it highly unlikely that we will tell the truth. You see, one of the things these corporations have done, we measured this in the book, but the broad outline is this. In order to cut costs, like any corporation, they've stripped out staff. So we've lost, all, all over the United States this has happened. You must be familiar with it in oh, your yes. newsrooms. Uh-huh. And it's happened all over the developed world. We've lost journalistic staff. And at the same time as that was happening, our output was increased. So we, we write bigger and bigger newspapers with more and more supplements. We now write for websites and podcasts and vodcasts. And what that means is that we've lost our most precious working asset, which is time. And the calculus on this side of the water in Britain was that on average now, reporters have about a third of the time, story by story, to work that they did 20 years ago. And when we followed that through, what we're finding is that journalists no longer have the time to do the basics of their trade. So by and large, we don't go out and find stories. We don't go out and meet exciting contacts in dark car parks. And we don't check facts. Instead of being active news gatherers, on the whole, we sit chained to our keyboards as passive processors of second-hand material. And much of this material is supplied by PR people. It's the, while we've been growing weaker, it's the PR people who've been growing stronger. In the United States, as in Great Britain, there are now more PR people than there are journalists. Now, when I started out, that wasn't the case at all. 
And these PR people, who may well be telling the truth, they may be telling lies, but what they're doing over and over again is to serve the commercial or political interests of the people for whom they're working. Right? And if we're sitting there, allowing them to choose what stories we cover and with what angles and what facts, by and large we're not checking, it's easy to get falsehood and distortion into the media. Now, what happened here in uh, Los Angeles area with the uh, L.A. Times, I think it was about mm -hmm. 10 years ago, the uh, editorial and the uh, journalistic segments of the paper were, had to meet with the marketing portion of the paper uh, about once a week or so to get their stories straight. Does that happen in Great Britain? Uh, not explicitly by way of formal meetings, but, uh -huh. but, but that, that's another example of the way this commercialism works through the newsroom. So once you've cut your staff and increased your output so nobody has the time to do the job properly, then what you find more and more is that reporters and other, other journalists are being encouraged to write stories that will sell the paper, mm -hmm. to choose stories that will sell the paper, to take angles, to write them in such a way that they, you will sell the paper. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you tell the truth. It doesn't necessarily mean that you pick the most important stories. Right? Mm -hmm. So that you don't actually have to have a formal meeting each week with the marketing department to instruct you to do this. It's there in the DNA of every newsroom. So, for example, an obvious uh, outcome of that is the massive trivial stories which we write about celebrities like Paris Hilton uh, or Michael yeah. Jackson. You know, we, we gave more coverage in, the, in Britain and in the United States to the Michael Jackson trial than to the entire continent of Africa and the entire continent of Asia put together. That, that, that is commercial logic working its way through media outlets. Yes. Well, the most fascinating story, I think, in your book is what happened to The Observer, the paper there in Great yes. Britain, uh, during the build-up to the Iraq War. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So you have to understand The Observer is an upmarket quality newspaper with a history of sitting to the left of center politically. You could be pretty sure in the build-up to a war like the uh, one in Iraq that The Observer would oppose that. What actually happened was that the Observer was manipulated from two different sources. First, there was one particular reporter, a very good reporter, who was heavily uh, manipulated by your Central Intelligence Agency, who fed him false information, which, I mean, some of it was wildly over the top. For example, they linked in a huge story Saddam Hussein to the terrorist attacks of September 2001. They linked Saddam Hussein to the anthrax letters, which you will remember were distributed in the United States after that. And then they linked him to further the training of terrorists and all sorts of other terrorist stuff going on. So, so that CIA material was being fed into the Observer and being run. We're talking big double-page spreads with big black headlines and false, false, false. Yeah. And simultaneously... Uh, the British government, through the Prime Minister's office at 10 Downing Street, were manipulating the political editor into running a series of other stories which tended to suggest that Saddam Hussein had all this weaponry and was indeed a terrible threat. And the impact of those two uh, channels of misinformation was, first of all, to completely uh, manipulate and subvert the thinking of the senior people on the paper. So they believed the false stories that they were publishing and therefore steered the paper more and more towards a pro-war line. Now, that was not just in the leader comments. It meant that it affected the way that they made decisions about other stories. And the worst single outcome of that was that their Washington correspondent, a guy called Ed Valiamy, had a really good connection into the Central Intelligence Agency, a named on-the-record guy who was saying, look, the CIA analysis now shows that Saddam doesn't have these weapons, okay? 
and uh, observers, Washington correspondent, tried to file this story from this on-the-record source seven times. And every single time, the people at the top of the observer, who had been manipulated, rejected the story because they thought it wasn't true. Right? So, the, so there was this great old newspaper publishing stories that were false, rejecting stories that were true because they were so easily manipulated. And this is really the problem now, that we are so easily manipulated by outsiders, and that was an absolute model of it. Were they not publishing the truth because they were afraid of looking foolish, or was there something else behind that? No, I think in good faith, having had all this misinformation pumped into them by the CIA and Downing Street, they believed that Saddam did have the weapons, they believed that he was embroiled in supporting terrorist groups, even to the point of having been responsible for the September 2001 attacks. And therefore, when their own correspondent in America starts filing stories to say, look, he doesn't have these weapons, well, they think this story isn't true. They've just been turned around. And that's the worst thing you can do to a journalist. Journalism is all about telling the truth. And if you can get journalists, senior journalists and editors, to the point where they believe things which are false, the entire operation backfires. And in addition, I want to tie back, and by the way, we're speaking with Nick Davis. The book is Flat Earth News. I want to tie something back into what you were saying earlier, which is mm-hmm. during the lead-up to the war in, in Iraq, um, there was also the United States government also hired a PR firm, a, a major United States PR firm, to essentially sell the war. So in addition to uh, government sources who are feeding these journalists false information, you also had this sort of uh, the PR machine angle working as well. Yes, sorry, were you talking about the first Gulf War or the second, the PR machine? The PR machine in the, sec- in the second one, the one we're currently in. So which, P- which PR firm are you thinking of there? Uh, I, you know, I, I was afraid you'd ask me the, the name of it, but I... I, I, I... It's just that um, in the first uh, Gulf War, there was some extraordinary activity around a PR company called Hill & Knowlton. Right. Who at that time, you know, a big U.S. company, although they have offices over here, yes. uh, were the biggest in the world. And they were hugely involved in fabricating completely fictitious stories some notorious ones, and these are described in the book. I mean, just stunning, really. Because, you see, most PR people don't like telling lies. Most of the time, what they'll do is to select the particular version of the truth which will help them. But certainly in the Gulf War there, you had a major PR company, and there's no question about this, this is now a matter of record, fabricating 100% fiction and pushing it out into the media with great impact. What you got during the... Uh, second Gulf War and since then is that there's another whole thing going on here which is that um, military and intelligence agencies from the United States and the other NATO countries have become involved in what they call strategic effects it's what what for a little while they called perception management but it's what you and I call propaganda Mm -hmm. and this has become hugely expanded since the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and this, this is all about naked fiction. Um, and it worries me, first, that this is going on at all, right, that there's been an apparatus established yes. to create fictional stories and plant them in these vulnerable media. But furthermore, that the media themselves have scarcely reported the existence of that apparatus. Mm-hmm. And I did a whole chapter about this in the book, and uh, I spent a lot of time looking at the way in which that apparatus of strategic communications had... Uh, embellished the truth about Musab al-Zakhawi. Uh-huh. You remember he was presented to the world as the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Right. And, I mean, there's a lot of detail here which I can't go into, but if you look back at that story, you see that hu- a huge proportion of what we were told about Zakawi was simply false. 
and that for a long period of time when we were being told he was the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, he was certainly no such thing. Right. Well, even... uh, and, sorry, and j just to underline that, stories like that have a really powerful impact on readers because what they're doing is to distort the truth. So you, you, you hear that there are explosions going on in Iraq. The truth is that this is the, the Iraqi population attacking American troops, but it's presented to us as the work of al-Zakawi, an outsider, a Jordanian, working for a terrorist organization. So what is in fact a rebellion by Iraqis is distorted and presented as the work of outside terrorists attacking the Iraqis, do you see? Yeah. Well, Sorry, it, I interrupted you. No, no, please. Uh, the, uh, in the point that I, I recently read a, a, a story about how Colin Powell was very concerned that something akin to the military-industrial complex was beginning to really take shape, and he was calling it the terrorism industrial complex, essentially building up around this idea that we're in this never-ending perpetual war and that mm -hmm. this sort of infrastructure of PR people and intelligence agents who have now gone into the private sector are involved in essentially keeping keeping this thing uh, at all costs, keeping it alive uh, uh, in order to uh, essentially get funding for their different programs yeah. and their different companies. So I mean, it's a complicated picture, and I wouldn't want to go too far into a conspiracy theory. Certainly you can see how there are agencies and private companies who earn a lot of money out of war, and therefore they have a vested interest in keeping it going. But I don't, I don't think it would be right to say that that's why the war keeps going. It's much, much more complicated mm -hmm. than that. By the way, within that, the bit I'm drawing attention to yeah. is the, the rebirth, you might describe it, of propaganda. Propaganda was pretty big during the Cold War. What you're seeing now is something bigger and much, much more worrying, I think. Right. Can anything be done about it? You talk about it as if it's a disease that cannot be cured. Can it be cured? Um, this, is, this is looking not just at propaganda, but at media weakness generally. Uh -huh. I, I think our position is pretty bad. You see, as long as the mainstream media belongs to big corporations whose primary object in life is profit, that is always going to overwhelm the requirements of journalism and truth-telling. So then the only other hope is that in some way the Internet gives us a way through. Uh -huh. But... Uh, I mean, all over the planet, there are media proprietors and journalists like me trying to work out exactly what the Internet means for the future of reporting and of truth-telling. And there are so many contradictory factors in there, so many unknowns, that you just can't tell quite where we're going to end up. So, like, in, in 30 or 40 years, there are plenty of people saying, in 30 or 40 years, newspapers will no longer exist as printed paper. All of our news will be delivered electronically onto screens of some kind or another. Now, if that happens, then look at the huge cost savings to media organizations. We no longer have to print these things. We no longer have to distribute them through trucks and trains. Huge cost savings. So then you say, well, then we'll, these media organizations will have loads of good money, and they can start hiring back all the journalists they lost, and we can start to do the job properly again. But it isn't necessarily as simple as that, because those corporations may simply give their money to the spare money to their shareholders, right, and not <laughs> invested in new stuff. Right, right. Yeah. And even if they do, what we don't understand is how, how much money will an electronic newspaper earn? At the moment, you earn a new money from a newspaper by selling a copy to a guy in the street and by carrying advertising. Well, in the future of an entirely electronic newspaper, simply published on a website, how much can we possibly earn from advertising? And there, there are no good examples that I know of of websites charging readers money to read news without frightening all those readers away. Yeah. So like my, my newspaper, The Guardian, runs a hugely successful website, 
but it's all free. We're yeah. not earning anything. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> you see, yeah. the whole model of whether or not the Internet saves us is, is an unknown. But may, maybe, maybe in some magical way, it'll, it'll help us through. Well, you almost seem to be asking the question whether there'll be news in the future. Yeah, well, the very definition of news, right? Well, you see, news to me is truth. And in order to tell the truth, I think uh, you need people who are specially trained and equipped and resourced to go out and find it and check it. That's what journalists are for. But we're not being allowed to do that anymore. And unless something saves us, you're going to go into a world where there's plenty of information, but you have no way of knowing whether or not it's true. That's right. Well, I, I, by the way, in the interest of, uh, of disclosure, I just looked it up. It's uh, the Rendon Group, R-E-N-D-O-N, Rendon oh, Group. Yeah. They'd gotten uh, $100 million from the Pentagon and the CIA as of 2005 to promote the war in Iraq. So John Rendon... More propaganda. Was, yeah, so I'm just... So there, okay. there, there's the name of that group. Okay, that's right. No, the Rendon group are fascinating. They're they're yeah. in the book. Sorry, I yeah. wasn't quite sure that that was who yeah. you were referring to. But no, they're very very interesting. Yeah. The stuff they get up to. Right. Okay. Th- we've been speaking with Nick uh, Davis. The book is Flat Earth News. Thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals and keep up the great work. Okay, that was fun. Okay, good luck. I'll leave you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.